Welcome to the Fitness in Color podcast, where we follow and highlight the experiences of people of color in the wellness and fitness industry, telling their stories in their own words. I mean, we've gotten questioned before, you know, last year's bra run, where, where we offered a sports bra, we offered free food, we offered a service, we offered, we offered after parties, we were questioned, where was the money going? We offered you a sports bra, we offered you an after party, we offered you a service and food, and we were still questioned by someone. So it's like, then again, what's that balance of, again, you're making us feel like, okay, are we good enough to charge? Like, you know what I mean? Like, is, like, what we're doing, is it, is it bad that we're charging type of thing? We wanted to make it accessible. It wasn't like it was a crazy price, you know what I mean? So it's like living in this world where it's like, are we good enough to charge? Yeah. And not being questioned on it even. Welcome to the show. Today's episode is a bit different. It's actually a pre-recorded panel discussion that we had back in September of 2020 as part of the Fierce Urgency of Now Festival, also known as the Fun Festival. It's a festival for millennials, millennials of color in Boston and plan to put together a full experience of having a fitness experience and then having a panel. But, you know, due to COVID, we held it virtually. So we had a Zoom fitness experience, and then we got into the panel. And three of the folks that we have on today's show, have uh, two of them have been on the show before, Lizzie Rock and Ashley Mitchell. And the third is Dre Nada, who is the founder and uh, head trainer at Live Fit Army. And the reason why I picked the three of them is because they live in diff- completely different worlds and the, the training facilities they work with and with the, even the population they work with. And so I wanted to bring this episode to the folks who weren't uh, there live, and I, I think that you will enjoy it. So without further ado, let's go into it. My name is Elise, and I have the pleasure of being one of the captains of Boston's most diverse long-distance running crews, Pioneers Run Crew. Thank you for joining us today. On behalf of our whole crew, we're super excited to be hosting this event during part of the Fierce Urgency of Now Festival. The festival is dedicated to discussing the experiences, challenges, and opportunities for young professionals of color in our community. We, as a host, are working with the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce and their Young Professionals Network, City Awake, to make the city stronger and more inclusive for everybody. So in a, I'm gonna turn it over to Sid, who's gonna be moderating our panelist discussion today. I'm so, so excited to dive right into this conversation. Without further ado, I'm so excited to meet our panelists. So I'm gonna pass it right over to Sid so we can get right into it. Thank you, Elise. Thank you. Thank you, Taj, for the workout. That was awesome. Well, so thanks everyone for joining. I am uh, Sydney Baptista, founder of uh, Pioneers Run Crew, also, uh, hosting the podcast called Fitness and Color. We will be using this audio for, for the podcast. So I just reiterate, please stay on mute and hold your questions for last for the end so we can reuse it and, and share this discussion widely. So we're going to hop right in here. Um, I'm going to introduce the panelists one by one and then we'll jump into questions. So first we have Ashley Mitchell. Next we have Elizabeth Rock. Last we have Dre. So we're going to hop right into it. We're going to go right to Ashley what got you into fitness and what led you to become a fitness instructor, leader, slash influencer? All of the above. <laughs> That's not even fair to ask that 
like 17 questions in one question. Very, very long story short, I grew up as an athlete. So you could definitely say that this is part of who I am, a part of my DNA. My father being a professional boxer certainly set the stage for my love of athletics, my work ethic, my, you know, take no prisoners, all that stuff. And it really wasn't until I was in grad school for acting that I got a concussion that took me out of school and and through that journey led me to believe that I was actually not where I was supposed to be and fitness was the place that I was going to be able to use all of my gifts. And so that led me to teaching for Orange Theory, which then led to Soul Cycle, which then led to berries and and all of those sorts of things sort of helped me to find my voice, helped me to form the Courage Campaign and to start to work with students and to start to work with people of color and really start to speak out about my experience as, you know, one of the only people of color in the room when it comes to fitness. And so it's been like a very, it's it's been a lifelong journey, but it's also been so short and lightning fast at the same time. So I think I'm, if you ask me this question six months from now, you're probably going to get a completely different answer, but we're going to start there. That's going to be, <laughs> this is the answer for now. Great. Thank you. Let's go to Liz. What got you into fitness and what led you to become a leader or a fitness instructor, a leader in the space, an influencer? Pick one or the other. I mean, I, I think a lot of people already know like my weight loss journey story type of thing. So um, I used to be 350 pounds and I basically, I knew I started that journey and wanting to lose weight. And then I would say when I joined the running community, that's when like that shift kind of happened where it's like, oh, wow, like this is kind of like bigger than me. And I think, you know, I wasn't feeling there was a purpose for me in my daytime job. I wasn't feeling fulfilled. And within the running community, you see like how much motivated that you are because it's not only you, it's other people. So you're part of this big community. And that's what kind of got me into wanting to teach group fitness. I'm like, I want to inspire. I want to encourage. I want to push people. And, you know, doing that in a community base or like in a small space where people come together. I was like, okay, let me try the fitness instructor route. And that's basically what got me into becoming a fitness instructor. Thank you. And Dre, if you could add what got you to become a fitness instructor beyond kind of that, that experience that you had, if you could share that. Hey guys, for me, it was just more about being an athlete, you know, just wanting to connect people, bringing the community together. I had a passion just helping people. So I figured that if I created the brand, it would hold me accountable because I felt like every time we'll have an off season, whether it's football or basketball, we'll take the summer off and then you have to get ready again for the upcoming season. So I felt like I needed the brand to hold me accountable throughout the whole year. It just happened though that, you know, people pushing me and telling me like, hey, you should become a trainer. You should do this because you're already good at it. You're already good at motivating people. You know, you should just go right into it. So I decided to just take the um, NASM test. And from there, I just decided to create my brand when I got bedridden with my hernia. From there, it's just been, it's just been a blessing, man. Just bringing all the community together, getting all the feedback from people. It was just awesome. It's great to hear. I kind of want to share the reason why I brought the panelists together here, being that this discussion is about being a fitness instructor or, or being in the fitness world in Boston as a person of color. So we have Dre, who, who has obviously lived fit army, and then he teaches and, and instructs in, in a part of Boston that's kind of like predominantly black, right? So 90% of, I would assume 90% of your clientele 
black and brown people. Then we have Liz, who kind of plays in the middle. I see her at both all black spaces and, and majority white spaces where she's a running coach and a, and a running instructor at Heartbreak Hill Running Company. And then we have Ashley, who is probably 90% of the time in white spaces. So I think that with our panelists here today, we're going to have a good discussion around what it looks like to be, a fit, to be in the fitness world in Boston. And I think there are two separate Bostons when it comes to this. So I'm very interested to hear. So I'm going to go right to actually to uh, back to Ashley and just kind of talk about some of the challenges you've had to deal with along your journey and in, in becoming a, a fitness instructor. And then if you wanted to tie that to like a bl- being a black woman in the fitness industry. Yeah, I think they are totally tied in together. I, my, my family is of mixed race. So I would say pretty confidently that outside of, of maybe a few instances here and there growing up in New Jersey, which, which is really diverse. I didn't have a lot of issues with what I look like, the spaces that I was in. I mean, I, you know, playing sports, you know, playing soccer, playing field hockey, you know, they were definitely predominantly white spaces, but you know, when I would go to school there, there would be all different kinds of people or there were always environments that were diverse. So when I moved to New England specifically for graduate school, it was a huge culture shock. I didn't realize not only how different I was, but I also didn't realize how that would be used against me in ways that, you know, in ways that sort of are underlying, right? Like I'm not walking around and someone's calling me the N-word. It's more sinister. It's, it's implicit bias. It's stereotyping. It's, it's things like that that have, I think, really affected me in ways that I wasn't prepared for. So I moved here when I was 27. I'm going to be 34 in January. So, you know, to go through most of my life without having to question in the way that I have or, or to not really, you know, have to gaslight myself sort of, or not even have this vocabulary for, for race and ethnicity that I have now was something that I think I'm still learning how to navigate considering how white the spaces are in which I work. And I think that it becomes really challenging because there, it feels like there's a lot of pressure on me to be the kind of black person that makes all of the white people feel safe. And I think that through my personality, I mean, I'm a nice person, I'm a generous person when it comes to my spirit. And so I think that I naturally draw people in and make people feel safe. But then there's this added layer of, of trying to make sure people are not afraid or trying to make sure that people can see that people with brown skin can also go to Ivy League schools, can also be middle class or upper middle class, can also be everything that any of the white kids are, right? And that it's, it's not a matter of race, that it's just a matter of circumstance, right? I'm, I'm no better than, but I'm also no less than, and my skin color doesn't dictate that. And so I feel like these past five or so years has been a lot of navigating, feeling like I have to educate white people, feeling like I shouldn't have to educate white people, feeling small in this black body, feeling too big in this black body, feeling too loud, 
feeling too muscular. It's just like, it's been, it's been quite a journey because how do I reconcile knowing that the very people that pay my salary are also the very people that voted for Trump four years ago, right? Or the very people that think that because they're liberal and they're affluent, that they can't also be racist or hold negative stereotypes and biases against people who look like me. So it has been and continues to be challenging and filled with lots of pressure, if I'm being completely honest. I wouldn't trade it, but if I had, no if I had known what I was getting myself into, you know, I can't say with certainty what I would have done, but it may look different than it does right now. Wow. So, so interesting to listen to you say that you didn't experience this until you came to New England, where it's supposed to be a hub of, lib you know, liberal America, where, you know, everyone ac is accepted. So right. thank you for sharing. Thank um, you. Let's go to, uh, let's go to Liz. Same question, Liz. What are some of the, the challenges you've had to deal with along your journey? And you can speak to whatever challenges you've, you've had. Right. I think for me, it's a, a little bit different just because I've, I've only been a fitness instructor for about, I'll say, a year now, a little bit less than a year that I've put myself in these spaces. I guess one big difference that I see, I mean, for sure, number one, like, I feel like I, the self-doubt, I guess, for me, because, like, you know, I, I work at Heartbreak or I worked at Heartbreak and then I worked at Trofit. So, you know, really comparing myself to other people who don't look like me. Am I good enough? Do I have enough certification? Do I have certifications? Do I have the ability to do this? And when I thought about becoming a fitness instructor, you know, the first thing that came to my mind was I want to be a running coach. You know what I mean? That was what I was really passionate about. I want to be a running coach. I want to be in the studio. Um, I wasn't really thinking about teaching at Trofit. You know, so I felt like I, I did the most to try to get into the studio, right? Where as far as Trofit goes, Trofit reached out to me to become a fitness instructor at their facility. You know, certifications that I didn't even need to have to work at the Heartbreak Studio, I felt like I should have it to like prove myself, show them that I am good enough to be there, which it's not like they even required it type of thing. So I think you know, a lot of the issues that I, I feel like that I have a lot of the time is me kind of like holding myself back or like questioning my ability to do something in these spaces. And then when it goes to Trofit, I feel like I'm a little bit more comfortable just because you have leadership. They're all women, all women of color. So you feel like you can relate to that a little bit better than working at a space that's all white or male driven because they take the time to really push you, to train you, and to like mentor you. There's Definitely a lot of differences in, in both worlds that I've, that I've been seeing. Nice. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. You had mentioned your weight loss journey, Liz, at the beginning. Right. So when you speak to experiences of, of not being good enough, are you, also, are you talking about just from like being a runner or are you talking like body positivity or a black woman or, or, or is it a mixture of, of all of it for you? I think, I mean, I think it's a mixture of all of it because when I went through my weight loss journey, it was, or still going through it, whatever you want to call it, um, when you went into these spaces where you, I went to these boutique spaces, right, it was, it was all white, you know, there was no diversity as far as in color or background, there was no diversity as far as body shape, you know what I mean, it was like you were only seeing this one type of person, so that could be intimidating, you know? I think it's just a mixture of being a black woman, being, you know, my body type, 
a whole hoax of, of things. Thank you for sharing. And then Dre, what challenges have you, have you had to deal with along your journey? For us, it's more about expanding when we go to different neighborhoods to host boot camps. It was more of like, you know, do we belong here? We have a huge ethnic background. Should we, you know, we'd be here, will we be accepted? But for me, it was, I'm always confident in breaking barriers. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind just being the first black guy to host a boot camp, whether it's in Dedham, JP, or we have went out to places like Hingham, or I wasn't fearful of doing it. So the challenge for me was just, you know, just getting out there, expanding. And then when it comes to my fitness journey, um, a challenge that I face is just being inconsistent. Like I said, taking a lot of breaks, falling off, not being consistent. And my brand holds me accountable because we have a run team, we have boot camps, we have one-on-one training, we have group classes. So I'm always working, I'm always active. So there's just no space to slack. Yeah, and that, that's it. So speak a little bit about thinking about going into different spaces, like going to different neighborhoods. So originally you were you were working out at Hyde Park in Rosendale area? Hyde Park, Rosendale, and um, Mattapan. And Mattapan. Okay, so yep. essentially pretty much predominantly black air, black and brown areas. Yeah. Yep. And then so talk to me about like, I don't know, any experience you've had like going or leaving that area and going somewhere else and some of the thoughts that you had about like, will you be accepted? Will other people show up? Yeah, I just want to hear, expand upon that a bit. Yeah, like expanding differently. Like we always like, you know, you have doubts, but I, like I said, I still believe I, I'm a leader. I should break that barrier. The doubts were just, you know, if people are going to show up. Like, you know, if we host a boot camp in South Boston or Cambridge or, you know, West uh, Chestnut Hill, will people show up? You know what I mean? But for me, it was, like I said, I'm all about breaking barriers and, you know, stepping out of my comfort zone. Just wanted to expand with my brand and, you know, letting people get the full experience of the Lifford Army boot camp or what are we trying to host a run team somewhere else versus Mattapan or Dorchester. And so when you're in these spaces, do white people show up to your events if you like do it in South Boston and Hingham? Uh, yeah, we, we've been getting a, a few turnouts, you know, obviously the minorities in that area will come out because, you know, that's the space that we live in where if you see, you know, a few black people doing something, you feel more comfortable to be a part of it. And then the small percentage of Caucasian, they'll, you know, they'll come out and ask what, what this is. Oh, this is pretty cool. You know, can I be a part of it? And if absolutely, you can definitely join. So the challenge, you know, is just, you know, just I think it's just taking that, that step and not being nervous or being doubtful. And then eventually mm-hmm. it, will, it, will, it will build up from there. Got it. Thank you. All right. Going to Ashley with this question here. Do you think Boston, as it is designed now, allows for diverse and inclusive fitness experiences? No. <laughs> not at all you know without going super deep into history i mean if you just look at the makeup of the neighborhoods right and where the studios are there's no even if you take a studio like trill fit right which i know that heather has said like she wanted it to be in mission hill because that's where her people are right but like we don't see things like trill fit in back bay Right. We don't see Trill Fit in Beacon Hill. We don't see. And I'm just using Trill Fit as an example because Liz is literally right in front of me on this screen. But, you know, we don't see really high end luxury black fitness businesses in the richest parts of the city. And so why is that? Right. Is that is that because of, you know, the history of Boston? Is that redlining? Is that 
you know, the disparities in income? Is that, I don't know, all of it? So I think that Boston is doing a really, a really awful job when it comes to being inclusive, when it comes to being diverse. And I think that we're not doing a good job because we're not fucking doing anything. Do you know what I mean? And there are, there are people who try, right? And there, and, but like, at the end of the day, neighborhood, prices, equipment, especially now that we're home, right? Like if you don't have a spin bike, if you don't have a Peloton, if you don't have whatever, then how are you doing some of these classes, right? So like, it, the cost of entry is so high in some cases that it just makes it impossible for people to have wellness in their life in a way that might be really positive, right? But, but then there has to be spaces specifically for people of lower income, right? Which like bugs me intensely because there are always going to be disparities in income. There are always going to be sort of like different kinds of jobs and different salaries associated with those jobs. And, and I'm not, I'm not going like this socialist route, but I'm saying, think about, think about the fact that like, you know, there are teachers out there, there are fitness instructors out there who teach free yoga classes just for the fact that they're trying to serve their community. So they're taking a hit on their income just to try to like bring wellness to a community that doesn't normally receive it. Or think about, you can be a Barry's instructor and make six figures. You could be a yoga teacher in, I don't know, Dorchester and not make anywhere close to six figures. Why is that? And so I think that I don't know what the solution is because it runs so deep as we're seeing with all kinds of systemic racism, but wellness is just like another part of that. If racism is declared a public health issue, then what are we doing to get well? That's, that's my question to Boston that no one's going to answer, but that's my question. <laughs> I asked that, quite, that same question when the mayor declared racism a public health crisis in Boston. I called my, my friends at our city hall and said, okay, what does this mean? Oh, you know, it's a technical term that they have to use to be able to open some funds to share, you know, with the larger community. So, but it's just like one of those things that we talk about and some of us talk about it a lot and then a lot of people just ignore it. Definitely want to get to the question about like, is, is health and wellness even accessible to communities of color? But let's get to that next. I, I wanted to get your thoughts, Lizzie and Andre's thoughts on the question. As Boston is designed now, is the fitness space, could we have inclusive experiences? Let's go to Liz first. Uh, like Ashley said, absolutely not. As it's designed now, that's a like hell no. Working at Trillfit, I mean, working under Heather and Melissa, they do a really good job at pushing the barrier, I guess I could say. Like, I love working at Trophy because I know that it's more than just those four walls. You know what I mean? They're not only talking about it, but they're actually doing the work. And I am here to say that I, as a fitness instructor for Trophy, I see them that they're, they're doing it. Like, they have, like, their Trophy pledge for, like, racial justice, anti-racism, inequality in the wellness industry for organizations and as individuals. And right now they have almost like 900 people who have signed this pledge. You know, it's like a five-year plan. 
which kind of gives me hope because you have people out there who are like again pushing the barrier and holding people accountable but as of design right now like definitely not the fitness space in, in the boston fitness is not diverse at all it's not accessible i mean the prices are ridiculous i mean i'm privileged enough to be able to you know afford some of these things but a lot of people in the communities are not like ashley was saying like how do we fix this and then dre what are your thoughts on kind yeah, of the, the think- current state I could piggyback off what Ashley and Liz is definitely saying. I think we just have to break barriers and we need more action and make stuff more affordable for, you know, the black and minority community that we can actually enjoy like everybody else. So Ashley has said the onus can't be on us, right? We have corporations that we give money to for, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever, you know, whatever they're, they're selling to the, to the black and brown community. There are a lot of corporations that take our culture and use it to make money. Right. But then why is the onus on us to create that, you know, create those experiences and then have to take the hit financially, right? Like I go to Four Corners Yoga, there's $5 yoga classes because we are in Dorchester, but the fitness instructors there, they coach, they teach there and they can make just as much, they can make a ton more just going down the street. So I don't know if there's an answer to this, but like, why, why is it that we have to be the ones that have to take the hit, you know, like, wouldn't you want to make six figures and, and, and be a bootcamp instructor, Dre? Exactly. It's just the demographics is different, I guess, it's when you go to different neighborhoods. And that's the part that sucks. No, I agree. Is health and wellness accessible to communities of color in Boston in general, too? So knowing that we in Boston, the average income for black families is well, the average net worth of, of a black family household is eight dollars. And the average net worth of a white family is two hundred seventy six thousand dollars. Where does that play, right? Isn't that crazy? Think about that. $8 and then and $276,000. So is health and wellness as a whole accessible to communities of color? I'm going to go to Ashley. I see her shaking her head. Because those numbers just like, I don't even know. I don't even know how to react to that, right? And looking at myself, I mean, obviously not maybe not obvious, but you know, one of my personal goals is to build generational wealth, right? Like is to have, you know, life insurance and IRAs and stuff like when, when my time has come, right? Whatever, whatever family that is here as a result of, of me, I want them to have something. And then when you say $8, do you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and so then it, it makes me look at myself because, you know, here I am, you know, like wading through these, like these white spaces because in part, right. I make way more money than I would make in spaces of color. Right. And so like one that feels like shit because my access to my own people is limited just so that I can <laughs> make my money, pay my student loans, live where I want to live so that I have freedom of choice, right? So I'm cut off from my own people so that I have freedom of choice. And that feels, that feels awful. I think that there are just like so many, so many things that people have, in our way when it comes to wellness right when it comes to the way 
doctors and healthcare workers treat people of color, if we want to just talk about COVID, right? How many news stories have we read of, of black people being turned away from the hospital and then later dying or black kids dying or not to even mention police brutality. It's like wellness being inclusive is like not even a question. It's like, can we just be well? Even if it weren't inclusive, I, I don't even fucking know at this point. I don't even know what I'm saying because it's just like separately, it's not even equal. So it certainly isn't together. Like Liz was saying, I don't even know what the solution is because it can't always be free classes, $5 classes, right? Because the people teaching the classes need to be on the come up too. So then where do we, I don't know. I don't, probably yeah, vote, probably vote. That would be number one. Right. <laughs> but what's the balance, like I would ask, like what's the balance to that? Where, where it's like, yeah. as a fitness instructor, I want to be hopefully one day making six figures so I can quit my job. So then I want to also be accessible to my people. Yeah. Like what's, the balance to that is there a balance <laughs> like, <laughs> so, i don't know Dre, so Drake, majority of your clients are people of color right how do you think about this or it's very interesting because like we're talking to ashley she lives a whole different world than where dre lives right in terms of like the like your everyday experiences and so it sounds like your your approach is obviously you know keep pushing and keep creating but like what are your thoughts on how accessible health and wellness is to our communities? And what are you seeing on the ground? From the ground, I see a lot of young professionals creating wellness brands. And I think it's very resourceful. And I think it's actually, we're making it affordable where we have free runs, affordable boot camps, where it's 10 or $15 to get people out of their house and keep them moving. And I think it's expanding. I know of at least 20 different health wellness brands that you can join within our community. And for ours, we just keep it at a, a rate where it's, you know, it's obviously affordable for the community. It's been growing for us. And I think we've been seeing a lot of different people coming out from different neighborhoods because they heard about us on social media or, you know, a referral from a friend or a client. At this thing, we just got to keep breaking barriers. It's tough, but we know we just got to keep breaking barriers and pushing our name out there and our brands. Because you honestly don't even have time to think about all the other bullshit, right? Like you just got to keep doing. That's, you don't yeah, have that's, time. You don't have time to have these discussions. You just got to keep pushing. That's my mindset. Yeah. And so, Liz, what are your thoughts on like representation? Well, I think representation, that's what kind of changes the narrative. We, right now, there's really no representation in the wellness and fitness space. So like having representation is what changes the narrative. That's what like brings hope. That's what brings in confidence as well. Like seeing people who look like you in these spaces then tells me that I belong. You know what I mean? So it's, it's super important to have representation. But right now it's, it's lacking 100%. What do you think about the thought of forget about making it equal or making it inclusive? Let's just like create our own. Right, because Dre takes right. the approach of just going and doing it, and he's making he's making it work where he is. He's making it work for his people, and you have a bunch of brands that are popping up around doing it. Right, so the way I think of it is, if you look at any of these fitness in in studios inside there, whatever they're talking about, whatever they're listening to, that is black culture in America. So then, if they can do it and make money off of it, why can't we create our own and make money off of it? I just think 
don't know, for me, as far as, like, when I think about, like, the bra run, right, or trailblazers, and we talk about forming these, like, communities, right, for, you know, to, like, have representation to bring people in. The one thing that me, Francis, and Abeo, we always struggle with is we want our services to be free, right? We want it to be accessible. But then we always kind of second guess ourselves when it comes to charging for like an event or something, right? Because, I mean, we've gotten questioned before, you know, last year's bra run, where, where we offered a sports bra, we offered free food, we offered a service, we offered after party, we were questioned, where was the money going? We offered you a sports bra, we offered you an after party, we offered you a service, and food, and we were still questioned yeah. by someone. So it's like, again, you're making us feel like, okay, are we good enough to charge? Like, you know what I mean? Like, is it bad that we're charging type of thing? Like, we wanted to make it accessible. It wasn't like it was a crazy price, you know what I mean? So it's just kind of like living in this world where it's like, are we good enough to charge? Yeah. And not being questioned on it either. That's powerful. Ashley, would you like to add anything? Even just going off of Liz saying in the beginning of this, how you know she got certifications that she didn't even need in order to feel you know she was where she was supposed to be, right? And but but then when you think about that, right? When you think about what you have to become, the steps that you need to take in order to be where you are, and then to not be compensated for it, why shouldn't I be? I mean, like. I'm a college educated person. I have like 17 certifications. Like I should make absolutely every dollar that, that I can because I've put in the time and I've, I've put in the money I've invested in myself. So I would assume that the return on investment is my salary. Right. So to even have to question, should we charge or what can we charge or to be questioned about what you're charging, it just doesn't even it doesn't feel real i'm like do white people have the same issue <laughs> y'all are laughing but <laughs> i'm well. real do you know what i mean like if you put if you put four white people on a panel would they be saying the same thing would they have the same insecurity would they be saying can our community afford xyz because in the circles that i'm in no one talks about that. People aren't talking about, can I afford a workout class? People are talking about, can I go to Thailand next year? Right? Like it's two completely different worlds. And I think that representation to bring it back is part of that. It's like, we're sort of good enough to entertain, but not good enough to be running the show. And when the first time that I took a soul cycle class and there was a white girl on the podium I was like, I want to be up there because I know that there are not a lot of people who look like me that get to do that job. I want to be the representation because I knew I wasn't going to find it because I hadn't seen it anywhere else anyway. And so, again, don't have any concrete um, action steps for anyone listening. I mean, obviously, recruiting and hiring and, and sort of diversity training and all those things that people are suddenly so interested in, of course, do those things, but it runs really deep. 
and it hurt like it hurts like it the, when we say the trauma is generational like it is this didn't just happen with us on the screen you know the reason why is because eight dollars versus two hundred and seventy six thousand dollars who's investing in our communities who's giving us the opportunities to open i mean we don't even have the money you know why we don't have the money because we were brought to, the majority of people were brought you know the, the people african-americans were brought to this country as slaves and then everything that they've made were either ripped apart from them or you know only keep a bit of it you know obviously generalizing there a lot but you know that's that's just the history of it and so if we only have so so much of the money but we've created all of the wealth how do we get some of that to just invest in our own communities just so we can do good for our people you know we're not asking for everything we just want some of what we created and so i know that Dre, you came to this country at, at 13, so you were yep. an uh, immigrant here. And so yep. I just know being, because my parents are immigrants, I know that the mindset of coming as an immigrant, you don't have any of that, that generational kind of, well, at least in America, you don't have that generational experience of you're in this country, you likely grew up where your grandmother was poor, your parents were poor, and you're poor, so your thought process is, I'm going to be poor, right? You probably mm -hmm. came from somewhere where people were working and has something so does that kind of play to your to your thought the way you think about it yeah kind of at least uh my pro whole perspective and my philosophy just i feel like we need to create our own gentrification you know reventing rebuilding everything so my thought process is more you know it's more stable and just you know just keep plugging away keep pushing now where are we getting the money to do that by only charging a certain amount of money for our classes because we can't yeah, I mean, I, for me, I just, you know, I just been serving my community and also, you know, like I said, expanding, just creating that money, like having a huge platform like we do right now, it's starting to trickle back in. And like I said, different races are different. Um, it's starting to diverse right now, which is good for us. We're seeing people from, like I said, Dedham, Walpole, all different races coming to our boot camps now, just hearing us on the media. So, you know, I'm, I'm just keep plugging the way. That's, that's all I can do right now. I love it, man. I do. Does anyone else have anything to add or we can start taking questions from folks who are watching? I know that there was a question in the chat to Dre about where he's from. Oh, I'm from Kingston, Jamaica. Lovely. <laughs> so I have a question. I don't know if you guys can hear me. I have my AirPods in. Yeah, we can hear Hi, I'm Shamika. I'm a scientist here. I've only been here for about four years. I moved here from Austin, Texas after living in Chicago. So I've been enjoying the conversation and I think I appreciate how you guys all discuss and explain your different challenges. But I think as a, a student of these classes and an attendee of these classes, I also experienced a challenge. So I live in West Roxbury. I lived in Cambridge before I hit this. I bought a condo here. So my neighborhoods are Jamaica Plain, West Roxbury, Chestnut Hill, Dedham, which Dre, I appreciate that you said you tried to expand into those neighborhoods because you're right. We don't often see those things here. So I appreciate that you do that. But I have a different challenge. My challenge is that I'll go to these classes and I'm often the only, the only person like me at all. And that brings a different feeling because it's not that black women don't work out because we do, we do. But it's like, if I'm searching for community, I'm not going to find it there. I'm not finding it at Orange Theory Fitness. I'm not finding it at Core Power Yoga. I'm not finding it at my kickbox, my hot yoga studio or kickboxing place, all places that I have memberships in and grateful to afford, but I'm not finding that community there. So unless I travel into Dorchester, or Roxbury, or Crunch Fitness, I'm often alone. 
And I think that that brings another feeling that's often not thought about. So just again, shout out to Dre for coming into these communities. And I think just from the student perspective, we feel it as well. Thank you. Shamika just shared some, some really awesome thoughts to add to the conversation, but we haven't addressed the questions. Renee had a really amazing question in the chat, if you want to maybe start there. Thank you, Renee, for the question. How do we make sure this movement keeps building? How can we continue to encourage people of color to join us in these wellness events? Many of, the family me- many of my family members say they want to be like me and work out more. And my response is that you are like me. This doesn't stick through, though. Any advice? So how do we make this movement keep building? How do we encourage more people of color? How do we get those people who are like, oh, like I really, man, I will join you when I can, but like I really want to be like you. Like how are we responding to that? There are a couple of studios who tried to get creative specifically during COVID to help people be able to afford classes. I'm thinking specifically of JP Center Yoga and they did like a sliding scale and sort of a pay what you can, which becomes honor system but I feel like if you're a person of integrity, you're gonna make sure that you're contributing somewhere around at least what you would normally contribute so that other people can take class at a lower price if they need to, but also the instructor can still get paid what they need to get paid. And so I guess I'm just wondering, you know, will more studios, especially since a lot of, a lot of what we do is completely digital now, Will more studios be willing to be more creative with how they build community and will they finally embrace that community includes people of color? I know that specifically when it comes to, Sid, you had mentioned they use our culture, but we're not really welcomed in the room, you know, and I hope that that is, that is something that people really think about going forward with music choice, with clothing choice, with, you know, like white girl spin instructors who decide to cornrow their hair, right? And have like no idea where that comes from or what it means or why a black woman would have braids, right? I just hope that people start to actually step into the wokeness that they say they're already at, because I think that that's the only way we're gonna start to see things shift to answer to answer that question or to to have the momentum build and i think for renee though like you know having that stick for like family members or friends who necessarily they want to work out and they want you know to change but they for some reason they have like this block and i think it has to do a lot with like education and just like you know past behaviors i think you just have to continue to do what you're doing you know what i mean continue to encourage continue to like push and just continue to do your thing and then hopefully that you know that will encourage a family member to, to join you a lot of love all of the uh the panelists here chris i have a comment question about how we get you all paid for labor and instructors while offering courses to own communities so how do we get folks paid for like people like us who um who are instructors to offer courses in uh for communities of color or low-income communities yeah uh, so I actually was looking at, for instance, I don't know how much you all know about places like the Boston Foundation that do philanthropic work in Boston and their general mission. But for instance, one of their categories is health and wellness. And what's listed right now is their top uh, receivers of grants in that category 
are the American Heart Association, Harvard Chan School of Public Health, Tufts University for Child Obesity, but even any one of you could apply for grants through them that are designed to provide funding to help increase wellness in Boston. And I guess for the most part, a lot of this stuff, it, it, it goes from institution to institution where these same white institutions that have been around and know how all the politics of this stuff works, it, it, it's just the same money passed around over and over. And I think part of how we can make sure that our instructors get paid and people that don't necessarily have the, the access to Pelotons or access to expensive equipment is through things like this. And I think there's maybe work that needs to be done on educating ourselves on what money is available. And yes, we are fighting an uphill battle because like I mentioned, most of, the, most of this money is going back into these institutions that it's the same, it's somebody's friend handing them a grant yeah. for that, that, that they told them about like a year before they were, this was going to happen. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you, Chris. And I think that's a great point. We just think change the way we're thinking about where we can get this funding, where we can get this access, and also just taking a multi-pronged approach to, to getting that money. Um, but I always joke and say like, you know, Nonprofits are just white people passing their, their money to each other tax-free because why do we have nonprofits? Why do we have poverty? Why do we have in our inequities? You know, it's because white people put systems in place to keep people down and then they, they keep them in place by, you know, in, in a lot of different ways. But that's a great point. I think we're good here, y'all. Panelists, any last parting words before I, I, I thank you and, and let everyone, everyone go? No, I was just looking at the question in the chat. It's not a lot of, a lot of studios aren't there yet, but some do have people of color discounts. But I think it's like one of those things where you'd have to call or look on the website. Like I think it's a studio by studio basis and, and not like a Boston wide thing just yet to answer, to answer that question. <laughs> yeah, it does feel like both a good idea and charity. <laughs> I agree, Shamika. But yeah, closing thoughts. I just, I just want to say thank you for giving me the space to share and to meet new people and to hear perspectives that are different from my own, but, but that come from sort of the same place of, of wanting there to be progress. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us, Dre. Any parting thoughts? Any parting words? Uh, yeah, thank you for having me step out of my comfort zone. I'm, I'm more for work. I don't really do the talking. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I just like to be the person behind the scene that does all the great things and not really the... So this is out of my comfort zone and I appreciate you guys having me. Absolutely. I think everyone plays a different role in the fight for, for equity and for, for justice. And Dre, you fight it in, the, in a way that you are in the neighborhoods inspiring people. Yeah. And so yeah, having your voice heard and, and having your perspective shared is very important. So you did very well. Thank, thank you. you, man. Appreciate it. And I think we lost Liz. Oh, Liz is back. Liz Trillfit. Okay, perfect. Um, I just want to say thank you again for having this conversation, Sid. You know, I appreciate, I appreciate the hell out of you. I think we just have to continue to have these conversations and try to push the narrative in the right direction. Thank you for connecting me with these panelists. And just that, continue to do the work, Sid. You're, you're amazing.
Thank you, thank you. Thank you to everyone else. Definitely wouldn't be having this conversation if folks weren't interested and folks weren't willing to contribute. So let's just keep plugging, keep pushing, keep pushing the narrative. We need to own the narrative and we need to take what we can and, and, and then do what we can. So multi-prong approach. And thank you, Elise, for holding it down. Elise is my, is my savior in everything we do that's public facing. She was the person who, who kind of put this whole thing together and made it a success. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a quick review. This helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. If you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it with them. That wraps up today's show. Thank you, and I'll see you on the next episode.